Can you just join me in thanking the Lord for all the incredible musical gifts that he's given to this place? And while we don't get to do our normal weekend festivities, um, there are still um, fall music festival events going on this evening in terms of ensembles and choirs, so as well as additional athletic events and volleyball games and soccer and football. So please check the website and schedule for um, events. And we are excited to see a lot of students finally get an opportunity to go out in larger numbers and enjoy some of the activities together this weekend with the freedoms that we have. So very, very grateful for that. And this is just a unique time when kind of nearly 20,000 alumni from around this place sort of tune in and watch campus in a different way and see what's going on and what's God doing in the next generation that he's raising up to lead his church, to be involved in his world, to serve his communities. And we've been talking about that this year um, in chapel, about what it means that Christianity will have power. I want to delve into a message on that with you today and reflect on a text that we've been looking at all semester long. And right before we do that, will you turn with me in prayer now? Lord, we have sung it. And it is the cry of our heart. There is nothing better than you. We acknowledge there are so many times where we have reached for idols. We have tried to find a calming presence in a place other than yours, in teachings other than yours, in gifts and good things of this world that at times we've abused. Father, help us in this season to be refined by your word and by your spirit. Work in us and allow your voice, especially in this time, to ring out as a clarion call deep in our hearts. Make us hungry for more of you. In the name of the risen Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I've had the privilege over the years of having kids play different sports, and so I've gotten to coach um, now volleyball teams and soccer teams, and right now coaching hockey teams. And there's something that's really fun just about that dynamic, but when we get to the higher levels now, and I'm coaching varsity hockey, and last year we were in the state championship game, and one of the key roles you have as a coach is the, the pregame speech. It's when you've got to draw out all the adrenaline out of them and you've got to remind them that everything that they've put into this, all the time and all the effort, that this is the culmination of their efforts. This is the apex of the season. It's everything that they've been waiting for. It's everything that they've been working for. And so you've got to lay it all on the line and you've got to kind of rile them up. And you've got to use the power of words and the adrenaline in the room and you've got to draw it out of them. And then you've got to give them a game plan about how this is all going to get pulled off. And at the end of the day, you want to tell them, guys, we're going to go up there. This is all going to come together, and we are going to tap into the keys of success for this game. And I want you to hear me carefully. In this hockey game, the winner is going to be the ones who enter onto the ice and are the most gentle and kind and humble and compassionate 
You see how jarring that felt? We are so used to having, comp having to compete in life on those sorts of playing fields. And whether it's an ice rink or a field when we're already a little kid, or whether it's a corporate office that we're in, or whether it's a band competition, or a scholarship application, or a, a test that we need to take to get into the next level of grad school, or somebody we need to impress, we are so used to the competition element of trying to find a way to get ahead in the world, and playing on all of these different platforms of the world, that so often the very keys to success in life and the things that matter eternally are often lost on us. And we have a hard time reconciling how it is that we are supposed to be successful and influential and even powerful in the world using the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Christ. And I think for a lot of us, that's really jarring, and we don't know how to reconcile those things. And I catch myself, too, just sort of giving in at times to the methods that the world wants to use to assert itself. When was the last time you prepared for a debate by getting away and asking God for meekness? When was the last time we prepared to enter into some sort of test where we had to assert our ability to be better at something than other people in order to make that cut? We prayed for humility. You see, we live in this world, and yet we're anchored into the next, and so we get lost sometimes in between the tug and the pole, and these truisms are just sort of accepted as conventional wisdom. Only the strong survive and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. And if you don't fight for yourself, no one else will. Add all of these up, and if you think about it, the way when we as followers of Jesus begin to apply these things, we look more like social Darwinists than we do the fruit of the Spirit. Survival of the fittest. I think that a lot of the times we think that Jesus was nice. Like, really, really nice. But we don't think he was very smart. It's true, we accept the content of some of his teaching, but without embracing either the entirety of it or the manner in which he delivered it. When the Sermon on the Mount starts off, Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are the powerful, for they shall conquer the world. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit it. See, one of the great differences of the way Jesus teaches the virtues of the kingdom of heaven is that they are things that we receive and we don't reach out and take. All of the dog-eat-dog -dog axioms are all built on humanistic principles about what it is that we will do for ourselves. And everything that God wants to accomplish in us are the things that he wants to give us. And so instead of a posture like this, it's supposed to be one like this. But that's hard on the street where I live. And in the worlds that you have to work in. And so those things are becoming increasingly rarer and rarer among God's people. 
And yet we wonder why Christian influence in America is on the decline. We wanted the power of Jesus without his methods. We've wanted a kingdom without the king. And so we come back into his presence and into his words in the way that he said them and let them actually have the authority that they're supposed to. Because I believe that it's actually the rarity of them today that will bring about this, their significance. It will stand in such stark contrast to the ways that people are fighting around us in the world if we followed and believed the wisdom of Jesus and how good he was and not just how right. Jesus' last words to us before the ascension was this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the last promise before the ascension. Jesus' last earthly words, and he's more excited about the coming work of the Holy Spirit than he was about his own earthly ministry. Go back and read John 14 to 17 in the farewell discourse. Jesus says the disciples all together. It's the locker room speech before the big game starts. And he can't even talk about himself even though he's about to die. 47 times referencing the Father. Another 30 plus times refer referencing the Holy Spirit. He is so excited about the other. So this isn't just the truth that he says. It's the way that he models it. That a life that is lived taking on the character of God becomes obsessed with the success and the thriving of the other. It's a movement beyond self, and the character of God himself made manifest in the person of Jesus teaches us this. And so when we talk about the fact that Christianity will have power, we're not talking about a power over approach. In fact, we're talking about a form of power that stands in direct contradiction to the ways so often it is employed within our culture today. This is the passage that we've been looking at. It comes from Paul's letter to a young church in Colossae. And listen to the movement already here as the first part as he sets this up, as he, he moves from describing past realities to present imperatives in light of future expectations. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, so let's just, we're assuming this reality. It's already here. Then set your, thing, or your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He sets this up with setting our hearts on things above, setting our minds on things above. Our Christian disciplines of prayer and fasting and reading and grounding ourselves in the word of God, our Christian disciplines that anchor us into future realities and reel them into the present in the platform of our lives right now. Jesus knew how hard this was going to be. So we set our minds and our hearts, we anchor our aspirations and the things that we want to accomplish, not in the things of this world, but beyond that. So when the competing voices come, we will have been anchored into something that is not just temporal, but eternal. 
Something that isn't just finite, but is infinite. Something that's beyond just what we can see with our own eyes, but with what eyes of faith can see. Jesus wants us to be able to have a power that isn't dependent upon our circumstances or our feelings, but upon heavenly realities that already exist, that our eyes just simply can't see. But as Christians, we're being asked to live in a world where our hearts know a truth that our eyes yet can't see. And that, my friends, is so much of the essence of faith. And this has implications in the way that we live and the way that we interact with others. And Jesus didn't set up the transformation of the world by creating a resurrection world tour where he'd go out with all the top bands all around the world and hit all the big cities and all the big stadiums. He didn't do that way. He didn't empower us with the most clever of words to best people in every argument. And he didn't give us every position of power in order to create the influence that we need, at least as not as it's defined by the world's standards. He said it like this through the Apostle Paul. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Because you need to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on the overcoat of love, which pulls the whole outfit all together in perfect unity. Over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at all the individual words and talking about their context in the breadth of Scripture and how it is that they're sort of packed with meaning based on the larger, um, broader scope of all of Scripture. And today we come across this word of gentleness. And yet I want to ask you today, out of everything already even preceding this word in this list, let alone this one, how many people in this room prayed at one point in time this week for either compassion, kindness, humility, or gentleness? My wife, growing up, kind of always had this sort of thing with the, the, the macho um, male image and was never really into that sort of uber, uber masculine um, kind of approach and guys, that wasn't a thing for her. So when she was pregnant with our first son, um, she would lay on our bed and she would put her hands on her stomach and she would pray gentleness um, over, over our child. She really felt like we were having a boy and we were praying gentleness. And I don't know if you've ever prayed against somebody else's prayer. Um, but I felt in my spirit wanting to do that. I wanted a hockey player, and gentleness was probably not going to cut it. So like when my son led the league in penalty minutes and in scoring, I'm like, yeah. And I wasn't thinking about gentleness. And I think that's pretty telling. The fact that what happens when God's own people aren't aspiring anymore to the fruit of the Spirit? What happens when the clothing of Christ is something that we don't actually want to put on? What happens to the effectiveness of our witness? 
When we're like, no, 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 God, I, I know that you said that's how we change the world, but I, I got a different plan. You just don't understand how the world works. I think so often in our own mind's eye, and even in the way we approach the words of our prayer, we treat Jesus like some sort of naive simpleton who didn't actually know where transformation came from. I know you saved the world and all, but really? Let's be honest with ourselves. That's kind of how we live it out. We're not even praying for the clothing of Christ to cover our lives. Because our hearts look around and we can't envision how it would be effective against the backdrop of our current cultural moment. Gentleness? Meekness? Humility? That's all the different ways that the word that's used here in the text is translated throughout the New Testament. And each of these words have, have their cognate, their root, in economic or social realms. In other words, it's not merely the inner disposition of the heart that's being spoken about, but it's actually how people see you. And we don't aspire for people to see us as meek. I don't think that we just feel like meek rhymes with weak. I think we live and act as if they are synonyms. And yet Jesus calls this blessed. In the Old Testament, this word group actually refers to um, afflicted, lowly, meek, and poor. It, it refers to socioeconomic statuses of people. And yet Jesus said it was blessed to be this. Really? Is it possible that we've looked around us in the world and worked so hard to insulate ourselves from a need for faith? To insulate ourselves from a need to cry out every morning when we wake up, I need a Savior! We want to position ourselves in life to be so strong that we don't need one. And now we're starting to see that there's some sort of resistance to faith being able to take root in our lives when that becomes our approach. It's time for us to come back to the teachings like this of Scripture. No matter how swirling our cultural moments are, no matter how many pandemics are swirling around us. It's the Greek word in brackets behind here. In the lexicon... Stated like this, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of oneself importance. We looked at humility last week, and really gentleness, it seems to be like humility, like activated outward in our lives. And this is the model of Jesus. He, he said himself that he was gentle and humble in heart. Gentle and humble in heart. Do we or do we not want to be like Jesus? It's the hard question we're being confronted with in this text, I think. This is my devotional that I've been reading through lately, What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jathani. And while these are the, this is the shortest devotional I think I've ever read, it's probably also been the hardest hitting. Because it just kind of takes these teachings of Jesus and puts them back in my face and asks, like, are you actually interested in this? Or aren't you? Here's one from the other day. If Jesus was serious, which is how every entry here starts, 
then we will not contribute to our outrage culture. I want to read this for you. It seems like our entire culture, including the church, is addicted to outrage. Anger has become the acceptable, even the expected, sign of one's commitment to any cause. In fact, I've learned that if I fail to show sufficient outrage on my podcast or in a sermon, I will receive messages from other Christians who are angered by my lack of anger. Just let that sink in a second. They usually say, don't you care that? And somewhere in the tweet, post, or email, I, I sometimes feel that my credibility as a Christian depends on my willingness to brandish my anger. And in some Christian communities, particularly online, anger is so ubiquitous, one might suspect it is a fruit of the Spirit. Why has it found such acceptance among us when Jesus warned so clearly of anger's toxicity to our soul? Perhaps our constant media consumption has deadened our ability to feel the more subtle human emotions. And in this overstimulated environment, only the sledgehammer of anger is able to get our attention. And if we don't use it to convey every emotion, we're dismissed for not having any emotions at all. Or maybe we are collectively in the second stage of grieving our loss of cultural significance as the church in North America. He's referring now, of course, to the five stages of grief. That if we've lost our place of privilege and of power, the first phase was denial, in which we rejected the evidence of a declining church attendance and cultural marginalization. Many of us now have moved on, actually, to the second phase, anger. And we're upset. We want to be great again. But what do we mean when we say that? If we mean that we want to have influence and we want to see the transformational work of Christ impact people, if we want to see the resurrection happen in the most broken places of society, then yeah, by all means, bring it on. If our attraction to anger is part of a collective grieving process, then eventually I expect we will move on to bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. We'll move on to bargaining. I would like to suggest that a lot of us as Christians in America are, are there right now. We're in the bargaining phase. I can vote for that candidate because it's all about policy, not personality. Or I don't care what their stance on pro-life is because for me it's all about this and that. We're all making concessions. You know how we're doing this, right? I am not making a partisan argument I want to make a Christian argument right now. There are so many of us who are making concessions inside of ourselves to our Christian principles, to the fruit of the Spirit, to the clothing of Christ, because we want to whitewash our favorite pundit, our favorite politician, with some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card to not have to live by the standards of the Word of God. And we're all having to do it across the board. Maybe we're in the third phase of grief and we're actually bargaining right now. Well, if I can't have that, well, at least I can... Isn't that scary? Last week, we, when we talked about humility, we said that if pride comes before the fall, humility comes before rebirth. 
That if it was pride's entrance into the world that led to the first sin, and that if this is sort of the, the culmination of all other sin, then humility actually has the inverse and opposite effect. It can create a, a soil that's fertile for renewal inside of our lives and can, be, um, can lead it to rebirth. Humility, gentleness, and meekness, these aren't nicenesses or weaknesses. These are actually signs of strength because they're the fertile soil in which the resurrection of Jesus can take place. And it's the outfit that we can put on that looks beautiful to the world in a world that sees so much hate and division right now and is desperate for the people of Jesus to look like Jesus. There is so much hurt around you right now that is begging for the Jesus in you to come out. To shine brighter than it ever has before. To put on the clothing of Christ and look different from everybody else around you. Because if pride comes before the fall, humility comes before rebirth, and also then growth. And we need growth. We need to close the distances between all of us that is being created by the toxicity of our cultural moment. The vitriolic language that exists even between our own leaders. It is separating us See, this is the very nature of sin. Neil Plantinga in his book, The Bre uh, Breviary of Sin, talks about this sort of disturbance in the shalom, that when sin comes into the world, there is a distancing that takes place between us and God, between us and others, between us and creation, and between us and ourselves. Sin creates distance between people. Now I understand we're talking about social distancing today like we have never before. But maybe even more dangerous is heart distancing. When you can push somebody away and put them in a them category. When you can stereotype and dismiss them. When you can negate the validity of their faith because they ticked this box in their denominational preference or their political party. You see, I want to suggest to you today that the hope in all of this lies here. That the clothing of Christ that we are invited to put on isn't merely a defense against the effects of sin. It's actually an advance against it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, putting on gentleness isn't just neutrality today. It doesn't just, it's not a, just a defensive weapon like a shield. It's actually an offensive weapon designed to take back ground. The followers of Jesus can spread more light into the darkness, can look more different, can advance against the kingdom of darkness if we would believe in the tools that Jesus said he would equip us with. Another way of saying it, gentleness isn't merely disarming, it's actually forward progress. And in a world where we've been distanced from each other and feel the effects of a distance from God, all the fruit of the Spirit that are so other-directed, all the pieces of the clothing of Christ that are other-directed, traverse the gap that sin has created between us and other people. If you don't like the discord that you see around you, the answer isn't a deeper anger. It's a more beautiful gentleness. If you don't like the hate that separates groups of people one from another today, the answer isn't a bigger weapon. 
It's better listening. It's a posture of softness and humility. We return back to the disciplines that we've always known that we've been called to. Commentator Philip Kennison says it like this, Jesus instruct us, instructed us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, not because he assumed such prayer would transform them, which I think is normally what we do in this, would transform them into lovable people, but because he believed that in praying for them, a transformation might take place in our hearts. The earliest desert fathers centuries ago already described prayer as an entrance into gentleness. That the more time we simply spend grounding ourselves in the character of God and asking to be embodied not by just his truth but his personality and the aspects of his character would be infinitely more effective to create transformation in the world than adopting the world's weaponry instead. And here's the beautiful thing about the clothing of Christ. The wardrobe of Jesus is stocked full. It is not run in limited supply. And there is no scarcity of the love of God and what he wants to pour out on his people. And every day you and I are being confronted with opportunities to manifest the love of God to other people. Not just in what we say, but in how we say it. To demonstrate love. Sometimes even just in a gentle answer. The ancient wisdom of Proverbs told us it could turn away wrath. The first century wisdom of Paul told us that if we put it on, we wouldn't actually be weaker. We'd actually be more powerful. Will you pray with me? Lord, in our moments of clarity and closeness to you, we do want to be dressed in the clothing of Christ. We want to look like you. We want to speak like you. And Lord, we admit and we repent, we confess that so often it is way more tempting for us to take on the tactics of the world around us. To return fire with fire. Instead of extending a cup of cold water in your name. Father, help us to be curiously and beautifully different. Help the outfits that we put on before the world in you be beautiful and enticing and contagious and set in you. And for all the places where your spirit wants to bring about that kind of renewal and new work within us, Lord, we invite your work. We ask your Holy Spirit now, convict each one of us in the places where we long and need rebirth. And make our hearts so that we cry out for things like compassion and kindness and gentleness. Help us to trust you even more. That you weren't just good, you weren't just nice, but that you are brilliant. Help us to trust again in the genius of your Father. 
In your name we pray. Amen. Will you please rise and receive a parting blessing? My friends and my fellow disciples in Jesus, your Father created you out of an act of love. Your Son died for you out of an act of love. And their Spirit empowers you, courses within you to share that love with the world. May you do it for his kingdom, for the blessing of others, and for your growth. In Jesus' name, amen.